Welcome to Radio Who, What, Why. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Amidst the cacophony of 24-7 news and information that pours in at us every day, we seem to have lost sight of what constitutes truth, facts, and real information. The signal-to-noise ratio has shifted overwhelmingly towards noise. Remember, it wasn't that long ago that we got our information from some local papers and three television networks. The original Cronkite Nightly News was only 15 minutes long. It was a big and controversial deal when it was expanded to a full half hour. In many ways, it feels like we are in a chicken and egg cycle. Technology has helped provide us with endless sources of information, yet we are also more polarized than ever. Is it the abundance of options that creates the polarization, or is it the polarization that causes us to seek only information to support our cognitive bias? All of this is part of what a recent report by the RAND Corporation calls truth decay. RAND recently released a 300-plus page report on the diminishing role of facts and analysis in American public life, and I'm joined today by one of the authors of that report, Jennifer Cavanaugh. Jennifer Cavanaugh is a political scientist at RAND and the Associate Director of the Strategy, Doctrine, and Resources Program. She's a professor at the Pardee RAND Graduate School. She has a Ph.D. and an M.A. in political science from the University of Michigan, a B.A. from Harvard, and it is my pleasure to welcome Jennifer Cavanaugh to Radio Who, What, Why. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. One of the things that you talk about early on in the report is that the phenomenon of people distrusting information, of fake information being out there in the marketplace, is an old phenomenon, but there's something different that seems to have happened in the past two decades. Talk a little bit about that history, first of all. Sure. So we identified four trends as being part of truth decay, as we're defining it now. The first is increasing disagreement about objective facts. The second is a blurring of the line between fact and opinion. That combines with the third trend, which is an increase in the relative amount of opinion that we have available to us circulating in the information system. And the fourth is declining trust in institutions. So we took a look back over U.S. history, um, going back to you know, post-Civil War time. That was the period that we focused on. And we identified three periods that looked somewhat similar in some dimensions. And we looked for evidence of the four trends that we identified as part of truth decay in each of those periods. So the trends that we, the periods that we focused on were the 1880s to 1890s, the 1920s to 1930s, and the 1960s to 1970s. What we found was there's pretty strong evidence of the blurring of the line between fact and opinion and the increasing volume of opinion relative to fact in all of the periods that we considered. So if you think about the 1880s to 1890s, there was yellow journalism, which was exceptional, exceptionalized and sensationalized stories that were spread in new mass newspapers. In the 1920s to 1930s, you have jazz journalism or tabloid-style journalism and the rise of radio, which was in many ways similar to cable news with very opinionated hosts uh, using their platforms to spread their opinions to wide um, audiences. Often those opinions were not based on fact. And in the 60s and 70s, you had propaganda surrounding the Vietnam War and the spread of television as the major um, source of, of news information. We also found some evidence of this declining trust in institutions. We see that in the 20s and 30s after the crash of the stock market in the Great Depression. We see it in the 60s and 70s directed towards the government as well as the media. But there are a number of differences between those previous periods. The most striking is that in none of those periods were we able to find evidence of increasing disagreement about objective facts. So that's 
that's that's pretty that was a pretty remarkable finding because it means that that is that what we're seeing now while it has parallels in the past is real is really distinct and so we tried to dig a little deeper and understand what were the other differences and why might that be and we identified a couple things worth noting one is that while each of these previous periods had changes in the way information was disseminated and consumed the changes, the scale and the scope of the changes we've seen with the rise of the internet and social media, it's just on a whole other order of magnitude. Another important difference is the depth of political polarization that we see. We don't see the extreme level of political polarization, social and economic polarization in the previous periods. So that could be feeding into why we see this disagreement about objective facts. And finally, the depth of distrust and the erosion of credibility in our institutions. While we see declines in other periods, the absolute level was still much higher than what we see now. So what we're seeing now is uh, it has a different flavor. It has some new elements, this disagreement about objective facts, and also a, a different severity or level of magnitude um, for some of these other factors that we observed. When we look at the differences in a period, say, during the 50s, during the Red Scare, the McCarthy era, and, and even the Civil War period, and we look at the disagreements and, and, and extreme disagreements that existed in those periods, talk a little bit about why they were different from what we're seeing now in terms of the polarization today. Sure, there have always been disagreements about opinions. People have always had different opinions, different interpretations, um, based on their different values or perspectives or priorities. But what we're seeing now is different because there's not only disagreement about uh, disagreement about opinions. Not only do people have their own opinions, but we're seeing fundamental disagreement about objective facts. And so that's different um, and 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 noteworthy. Um, the other thing I would say is that we're not only seeing this. Um, this disagreement about objective facts, but we're also seeing um, a different level of decay of the social consensus and a different type of polarization in that it's these reinforcing lines of polarization. So you not only have political polarization, but you have economic, social, and other types of polarization that occur along the same lines, which creates a very fragmented society and makes it really easy for information to become siloed. Uh, the irony, of course, is that at the same time, it is easier for people to communicate and easier for people to get information that the net effect is this polarization that you're talking about. That's right. And some of that is an unintended consequence of what should be a good thing, and that is democratize access to information. We should want more people to have avail um, access to more information, and that so that is a good thing. But what that means is that it becomes more difficult to sift through that information, and also that some of that information may be of lower quality. And so what we're seeing is the effects of filters and algorithms and heuristics that people use to screen out information and filter information down into manageable chunks. And so some of this is self-imposed. People seek out information that confirms their biases. And some of it is written into the systems, so written into the Google search algorithms or the types of information that Facebook and Twitter um, show their users, which means that you're more likely to see certain types of information than others. And so it's very easy for these echo chambers to form, um, both through the, the person's own intentional decisions about what to consume, as well as what they're shown by these um, search engines and social media platforms. 
What it seems to have is this cyclical ability to amplify and reamplify and reamplify again whatever individual cognitive bias may be. That's right. And one of the arguments that we make in the report is that cognitive bias has always existed. This isn't something new. Right. But what we're seeing is that these uh, cognitive biases are being magnified by the changes in the information system, including the rise of social media, by political and social and economic polarization, which increasingly pull people into a very insular group, and by competing demands on the education system, which challenge its ability to provide students with the skills they need to distinguish good from bad information, and those skills are becoming so important in the new information environment. What is the role, as you have found it, with respect to civil discourse? Certainly we've been through other periods where the coarsening of discourse has been obvious. It seems to be even more magnified today. Talk about that in the context of, of what we're discussing. So our argument about civil discourse, and this relates also to uh, political paralysis, is that when you don't have a common set of agreed upon facts as the foundation for a discussion, it becomes really difficult to have meaningful debates with people with whom you disagree. You see that in, in, the, in the political realm. It's, it's hard to have meaningful policy debates about policy options that are available if you can't even agree on the starting point for the discussion, the objective facts that should be informing that debate. Certainly people are entitled to their own opinions, but there should be that basic set of objective facts. When those objective facts don't agree, don't exist, it becomes difficult to have a debate to reach compromise. And what we see more often in, in, in civil discourse these days is people shutting down a conversation when the person they're talking to disagrees with them rather than engaging. And that has implications both for policymaking but also just for the quality of democracy, which is founded upon the participation of citizens and the active and engaged debate in a marketplace of ideas. And to what extent did that happen or not happen in some of these other periods of conflict that you look at? So certainly there was a decline in social consensus and wide um, splintering of opinions about how best to organize the government, what was the function of the government, uh, what type of society do we want to live in, what are the values that are most important. And those debates should and continue to happen now. But what we don't find at the core of those debates in previous periods, and perhaps perhaps it exists and we just haven't ever uncovered the evidence yet, but what we what we see now is that the reason that those debates don't seem to go anywhere and the reason that they become so polarized is that there is not a foundation of objective facts. So we're not just debating about uh, conceptions of what the government should be doing, but we don't even agree on the data or, uh, or the facts that should be informing that debate. And so that's different about this period, which makes it even harder to address the problem because it's not just a matter of us coming to some kind of compromise. It's a matter of us even establishing those basic facts on which to start the debate. To what extent is the degree to which information has become a kind of ent consumer entertainment, to what extent does that play a role in this today? So I think that plays a big role. Um, we talk about the blurring of the line between fact and opinion, and that could include the blurring of the line between fact and commentary, between news and entertainment. And when, when you turn on the TV or you listen to the radio or even when you read um, news online, a lot of times what people are looking for isn't just the straight facts, but they want those facts spun a specific way. And they, 
they turn on the TV for that entertainment value. And when news becomes entertainment, people are no longer demanding the hard facts. And media companies then don't have the incentives, the market incentives, to spend the money to provide that deep investigative journalism. So there's both a supply side and a demand side. And the fact that news is now viewed as entertainment uh, plays a big role in that. Can you identify, have you identified some kind of tipping point in the past two decades that really was, was a fulcrum moment in getting us to where we are today? We have not identified a specific tipping point. There may be one, but really we've been focused more on the trends. We see this, this decline in the reliance of facts and data in political and civil discourse unfolding over the past two decades, and we can't exactly tie it to a specific event or a specific uh, a political actor. Um, instead, what we're looking at is how it unfolds. Um, it's likely that it may just be a confluence of events or a confluence of factors. It could be that we have these massive changes in the information system combined with uh, certain demographic and economic patterns that, that contribute to polarization, combined with um, any other type of factor that we see going on, challenges to our education system um, coming from other directions, and the fact that all three, all four of these different factors come together at once is how you end up with, with what we're seeing now. There, there also seems to be greater pressure in this period of massive amounts of information for greater literacy and greater critical thinking skills, which are in shorter supply. That's right, and that's why we focus on these competing demands on the education system. As the information system becomes more complex, the skills to distinguish good from bad information become increasingly important. But our school system already faces numerous demands and a shrinking fiscal constraint. So that creates a, a, a large challenge that they, that they have to address. Um, like any institution, schools change slowly, so we've seen a lot of progress over the past five or so years in terms of the development of media literacy and civic literacy programs, but still the schools have not yet closed that gap between the skills they provide to students and the demands that the information system places on them. And that means that things like media literacy, social studies, civic literacy, sometimes statistics training to help people understand infographics, that sometimes gets crowded out. And the problem is even worse than that because it's not just students who are affected. It's obviously also adults who weren't trained this way in school. And so that gap between skills and demands, um, I think, is a big part of the problem. When did we start to see this decline in the value of expertise? Well, again, I don't know that I would put it at a specific point. I think that we've seen an, an erosion in credibility and trust in mm -hmm. institutions that used to be key providers of information. And that, combined with this increasing disagreement about objective fact, has led to a questioning of what makes an expert and which experts should be trusted. Um, so I think, again, it's, more, it's been more of a process, and that's why we're calling it truth decay, because decay naturally uh, indicates a process. Mm -hmm. There is also this effort that goes on on the part of those that are trying to make an argument to destroy the credibility of facts and information that comes from institutions that are in disagreement with their point of view. That's, that's definitely true. Um, and it's a concerning trend, and it's one of the main reasons that we wrote this report. Uh, one of the reasons that we wrote this report and one of the reasons why we really tried to focus on the hardline consequences of truth decay was that we wanted to get across the point that facts really do matter. Um, 
and that there are economic and other consequences to ignoring them in policymaking and political debates. So I think our our perspective as we are writing this report is that understanding facts and having facts invo- involved in the debate and in policy decision making is very, very important. One of the points you make, and, and it's so fascinating, is that in other areas outside of the governmental realm, the political realm, and, and some of these areas that we're touching on, that in business, for example, and, and in other areas, the trend is towards more information, towards big data, more facts in order to make decisions. That's right. And one of the questions then is why? Why don't we see the same trend in the um, political and civil discourse area? Um, one possibility, this is an area that we're still exploring, but one possibility is that it's about accountability in business and in sports. If you don't use data appropriately, you end up with bad consequences and you have either shareholders or uh, you know, your fans or your uh, you know, team owners to hold you accountable. And in the political sphere, in order to make sure that we get facts in there, people have to demand them, uh, which is why we, in the, in the report, focus not only on thinking about a supply-side response, what can we do to improve the quality of information, but also a demand side. How can we teach people to demand facts and teach them to understand why facts are important? One of the questions that it raises powerfully is the degree to which our system of government, the degree to which our kind of democracy is or isn't able to function in this kind of information environment today? Well, I think that one of the reasons we wrote this report, my co-author Michael and I felt that this, the truth decay is a very um, important and serious threat to American democracy and to the health of that democracy. Uh, facts and debate and having an objective set of agreed upon facts as the foundation of policy making and policy decisions is, is very important to the survival of democracy. Uh, at least in, as you said, the type of democracy that we have in the United States. And so we were, were motivated to write this report because we were concerned about the consequences that truth decay might have for our institutions uh, going forward. Talk a little bit about how you see the role of journalism today and also within the framework of some of the historical precedents you look at. Well, one of the things that we noticed looking at the historical examples is one of the things that seems to end uh, periods that seem similar to truth decay in the past is a return to really hard-hitting investigative journalism. And some of that is demand-driven, people demanding it, and some of it is a supply-side function, journalists wanting to provide it, newspapers demanding that it be provided, um, co- codes of conduct and standards that appear in the newspaper industry, say, in the um, you know 1910s um, following the yellow journalism would be one example. Um, so, you know, one thing that we see is that uh, an increase in investigative journalism now uh, could be one solution or, or one way to uh, work against truth decay. The question is, how do we uh, motivate that type of response? And again, I think it has to be both demand and supply side driven. Uh, you know, we make the point, we talk about agency in the report and the role that different types of actors play in amplifying the trends of truth decay. And while we include the media there as an agent that can, that certain certain media outlets do contribute to the blurring of the line between fact and opinion and do contribute to the problem, um, either intentionally or unintentionally, we also want to be clear that uh, journalism could also be part of the solution in terms of really reinserting the facts into the debate and making sure that 
that investigative journalism comes back and becomes more the norm. Of course, journalism itself is one of the institutions that is under attack in this framework. Well, that's true. People have lost a lot of trust in the media. Um, some of that is, uh, you know, obviously institutions need to earn the, earn the trust of uh, the constituency that they serve. And certainly instances where journalists or media organizations have been misled or misleading in their reporting doesn't help uh, rebuild trust. Uh, one of the things that we're trying to do here at RAND right now and some of the follow-on work is understand why trust has declined, why trust in the media and government has declined so badly, and try to think about ways, lessons that we could draw from institutions that have been able to retain public trust in order to help rebuild trust in institutions like journalism um, and like the government where, you know, people trusting in the information provided in those institutions seems to be an important part of the stability of democracy. Which raises the question, what do people trust today? What are those institutions that have high levels of trust? Well, the institution that has probably the highest and even sometimes increasing level of trust is the military. Uh, that could be because we look to the military for different things. So we don't look to them necessarily for information all the time. We're looking to them for, for, for to protect national security. Uh, the data that we have only goes back to the mid-70s, so we don't really know what that looked like, say, during the Vietnam War, but at least right now. Uh, public schools have done pretty well in terms of retaining public trust. Um, the medical community has done pretty well in retaining public trust. So those are some of the ones that we might look to as examples. Why do people trust these specific types of organizations? Is it because of how they're organized? Is it because of what they provide or what people expect of them? And obviously, trust is also a very uh, complex um, a, com a complex concept that includes things like approval and uh, confidence. And do I think that the government is representing my best interests? So we, we'll need to tease out what all those different pieces of trust are. While that's going on, while we begin to examine these things, those very institutions, public schools are a good example, are having trust and confidence chipped away at them at the same time, that, it, that it's not a constant in terms of looking at those institutions. No, that's definitely true. Uh, the, the aggregate levels of trust in those institutions has been pretty stable over the past uh, at least 10 to 15 years. Um, but certainly that doesn't mean that every everybody trusts them at a stable level, right? That's an aggregate trend, and we so, so we need to disaggregate and understand how trust has changed in specific groups for these different types of interest institutions. And that's definitely something we're trying to dig in more deeply to understand the data, to understand what which groups trust with this, which institutions most and how that's changed over time. The other part of this is trying to understand, perhaps at the same time, how to begin to unravel this, how to unwind this predicament that we've gotten ourselves into. That's right. And that, that's one of the purposes of our report is to lay out a strategy for addressing truth decay. And one thing that we try to make clear is that there's a lot we still don't know, and we will need to collect more data and do more analysis to understand the problem better and to collect data to understand the areas where it's most severe. But some of the areas where we're thinking about responses that might be valuable are uh, education, which we already talked about, increasing the number and types and uh, effectiveness of media literacy or civic literacy programs, not only in schools, but also outreach to adults. 
Another is to think about changes in the media market, including not only regulations, which obviously would need to be consistent with the First Amendment, but also market incentives or different types of funding that might encourage investigative journalism or encourage the use of facts. Um, another thinking about the research and academic community, which also plays a role in this, is uh, thinking about ways that we could do a better job, uh, ways that experts could do a better job in uh, communicating technical findings in a way that people find tangible so that maybe there isn't as much room for distrust in those areas. So these are some of the things that we are trying to look into and to understand whether responses like these would be effective um, and, and if not, then what would work? And if so, then how do we implement them? Is there a way, or have you looked at in, in the broader context, trust in individuals versus trust in institutions? Because we seem to have this habit, and it's part of the entertainment aspect we talked about before, part of celebrity culture even, which we're living with in this, in this rubric today, that we build up somebody, we build up trust in them, only to really do that as a way to tear them down. Well, there definitely is a, trust, a difference between trust in individuals and trust in institutions, and you can see that in the data. Uh, if you ask people, do you trust your representative in Congress, people tend to have much higher levels of trust for those individuals than they do, say, if you ask them, do you trust Congress? Mm -hmm. People tend to trust their doctor more than they trust doctors writ large. And I'm not sure why that is. It could be because there's an immediacy. I trust someone that I know and that I've talked to, whereas I don't trust someone, I don't trust this big institution that I can't put my hands around that I don't understand. But I think that's an area that probably needs more research. And that does seem to be in some ways you, the, the thing you just touched on in terms of what people know, what they can touch and, and talk to and feel, is that, that in order to build this back up, build this trust back up and unravel this, maybe it has to start on the most basic, fundamental, local level that we've gotten, gotten away from in many respects. I do think that's right. And, you know, the research is pretty clear that in order to overcome cognitive bias uh, or reduce cognitive bias, which is obviously a fundamental part of this, one of the most important aspects is this idea of a trusted messenger. And it's not just about providing, uh, providing factual information, but making sure that factual information comes from a trusted source for the person who, who is being communicated to, and also the way that message is communicated. So I think um, as much... We, we can think about lots of, t of big top-down responses, but I think you're right that a lot of this is going to have to be from the bottom up, and it's going to have to be person-to-person. -person. It's going to have to be uh, a small response first that aggregates to something bigger. What have we come to understand, and is it worth looking further into the origins, the psychological, the neuroscience origins of individual cognitive bias and, and how they work to better understand how they're interacting with all these outside forces we've been talking about? Well, I think there's actually a, a, a lot of in, uh, research done on cognitive bias. I mean, it's something that is just fundamental in the way we process information, um, which has to do with both our the limitations of our bandwidth, how much information we can hold in there at once, and how we make decisions, and how we interact with other people who have similar and different views than us. And there's a lot of research going on now that's trying to look at uh, what we can learn about cognitive bias in the, in the current context and what that might mean for uh, overcoming um, or reducing the effects of cognitive bias on, say, the spread of myths or disinformation. Um, and so there are several universities that are doing uh, really interesting experiments, both lab and survey experiments, 
to try to get a better handle on this. One of the other areas that you look at are the consequences of all of this if we continue down the path that we're on now. Well, we identify four consequences. The first is an erosion of civil discourse, which we already talked about a little bit. Um, This is the inability to have meaningful disagreements and discussions with someone who holds a viewpoint that is opposite to yours and the tendency to shut things down. And again, our argument is that this arises because there is not this uh, agreed upon foundation of objective facts. Same thing, political paralysis. When you don't have commonly agreed upon objective facts as the foundation of policy debates, it becomes that much more difficult to have a real conversation about policy options and to come to compromise. And what you end up with can be political uh, uh, government shutdowns, which we saw just a couple weeks ago, which have enormous economic costs. Um, As an example, the shutdown in 2013 estimates suggest that it resulted in 15 to $20 billion of lost GDP for the United States. And it can also result in rapid policy reversals, and that is that does not have good implications either for the policymaking process or for really economic or national security. Um, the third is uh, disengagement or alienation from the political system. And what this refers to is the process or the tendency of individuals to simply opt out of the political system because they just do not trust the institutions. There is too much noise, too much information, and so they choose not to participate. And this is really serious because as a democracy, we are – democracy requires that individuals participate and are engaged and involved in political decision-making. So if we lose that – then what is the democracy based on anymore? And then finally, uncertainty. Uncertainty in national policy that affects business decision-making, individual decision-making about buying health care or financial planning, and um, also has diplomatic consequences. When our allies and adversaries are uncertain of U.S. intentions, it can affect their decision-making, which can have uh, serious national security consequences. So I think what we try to underscore is that the consequences of truth decay are not theoretic or just academic, they are tangible and have real impacts for individual lives. And is there any difference as you look at this through the lens of generational cohorts? You know, I I don't think it operates on a generational uh, pattern. I think that everyone is pretty much susceptible to truth decay. It may just be a matter of um, the exact mechanism through through which that occurs. So we know that young people are more likely to use social media and more likely to use social media to get their news. Social media has advantages in that it provides a lot of diversity of information if people choose to consume it. It has disadvantages in the sense that that quality isn't always very high and it's very easy to get sucked into an echo chamber. However, you look at older generations who are relying on print or television news, they may not get any diversity. It may just be from one or two sources. And again, there are still questions about the quality and the um, the degree to which it becomes an echo chamber. So I think that no matter sort of which generation you're in, you're you're susceptible to these um, you're susceptible to the effects of truth decay. Jennifer Cavanaugh, the report just out from Rand Corporation is truth decay. The Diminishing Role of Facts and Analysis in American Public Life. Jennifer, I thank you so much for spending time with us today here on Radio Who, What, Why. Thanks so much for having me. It was really great to discuss the report with you. you. Thank you.